Ayah, and Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates. Sanballat and Geshep sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hekifrim uh, in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also, uh, also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel, that this is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such thing as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking, their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. <laughs> Sorry, one second. He's doing fine. <laughs> Sorry, he's, uh, I left, I was, I was uh, at the edge of the seat. And then, and then he escaped. So, uh, Our next reading is from James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, as we've come into your presence, as we have sung of your praises, as we've heard of your goodness for us, as we have prayed, uh, as we have reflected, as we have given, Lord, we know through it all that you're with us and you're working. And now as we come to reflect on your scripture, help us, Lord, to understand the meaning of your scripture and what your Holy Spirit is seeking to teach us so that we could continue to be strengthened by the resources that you're giving us. We thank you, God, in your son's name we pray. Amen. So this week we are continuing on our study of Nehemiah, and we read in this chapter that Nehemiah just faces more opposition. We read that this uh, chapter is concerning a very crucial time in the, the whole building process of the wall. We read that the wall is almost finished, that only, the only things that are left are the gates of the wall. And so at this crucial time, we see that the enemies of Nehemiah have taken a different strategy. Instead of coming with armies to try to kill Nehemiah and the other residents of Jerusalem, we see that they're now coming in in a more devious and subtle manner. They're trying to get Nehemiah out of the picture. And they're also trying to discredit his name and to make him an unfit leader so that no one would uh, listen to him as the walls are finished. And if you've been with us over these past weeks, you know that we've just seen Nehemiah hit one problem after another. Just imagine for a second what it's like to be Nehemiah. Like just imagine what his daily life was like. He had enemies 
every single day that we're trying to, to get rid of him or kill him or hurt him in some way. Trial after trial besieging him. Situations arising daily that could totally dismantle all the work that he, that he did. People disappointing him and betraying him on a regular basis. Facing opposition in everything he does. Just imagine if that was like your week last week. Yeah, you know, people trying to hurt me, you know, people betraying me. Uh, trials coming up every day that could just destroy my school, all my schoolwork and all my work and everything I've ever done. Yeah, you know, just a normal week. I think if we experienced those things, we would be really close to like throwing in the towel. Or at least just going to a really dark place or a really cynical and frustrated place. Yet for Nehemiah, we see that he just does not do any of those things. It's not like he's not frustrated because we see he's frustrated regularly. It's not that he's not overwhelmed because we see that he's overwhelmed regularly as well. We've seen that over the past weeks. But we see that he pushes on. He does not stop. No matter what is hitting him, no matter what trials ahead of him, we just see that he pushes forward. There is uh, an example in Nehemiah of perseverance of what it means to just keep on, keeping on, no matter what is in front of you. Perseverance is this idea of persistence, doing something despite difficulty or delay in achieving success. It's just this idea of like keeping going, keeping on and keeping on and keeping on, though you never see the, you know, the fruit of it. You just see difficulties after difficulty, but just keeping on. And that's what we see this example of Nehemiah in this chapter, but really all throughout the book of Nehemiah. And this idea of persistence is not just in Nehemiah, but if you look throughout the scriptures, you will see the idea of persistence talked about again and again and again. Because persistence is really this idea of how we live our faith. Persistence in the scriptures is really describes how we keep going. How we just keep persisting in our faith through our whole life. Remember, Paul talks about faith as like a, a marathon, not just as a sprint. So how do we keep going? How do we keep faith even when things are hard? Persistence is the way described how we keep going how we keep alive, how we keep thriving, how we keep growing in our faith. You know, in all of our lives, we have mountaintops. I think probably many of us in this room have had a mountaintop of some sort in faith, where you have, like, God seems real, where things are confirmed, life, like, just makes sense. And those are amazing places to have, but we all know that they don't last. Because eventually you go down to the valley... And the valley is often a place of confusion. And it's a place of doubt and wandering, wavering faith and sin as it hits you. And all of us live in the valley sometimes and we all live in the mountains sometimes. But there's a lot of life that goes on between those two moments. Because the mountains come every once in a while. I mean, I used to kind of like in my faith, like go from mountaintop to mountaintop. But the problem was my mountaintops would become like hills, and then they become like bumps, and I'm like, wait, what's going on? Why isn't God doing like hitting me in the way he used to? And then like, I know for myself, I've hit many patches of valleys where 
maybe a, a day, a month, even a year or longer where it just, things are hard. Faith is not easy. There's doubts, there's fears, there's worries. But a lot of our faith is not lived either in the valley or the mountain. It's lived just in the daily grind, just in the day-to-day. When we're not necessarily feeling the high, but we're also not necessarily feeling the low. We're just kind of in the middle. You know, some of us have described that as being kind of a dry season. I think other of us have kind of felt it as like a plateau in our faith. But that's where like a lot of our life and faith is lived. So how do we survive in faith in that middle place? In just that place of daily life goes on and goes on and goes on. And the scriptures remind us that we, remind, we survive and we thrive in faith by seeking to be persistent and to persevere in our faith. There's this idea, like in the scripture, we see that there's kind of an elasticity to faith that is what God is seeking to develop in us. It's kind of like a, a rubber band. You know, a rubber band, very elastic, can, can change shape, can get pulled and pushed in many directions, but when it goes back, it goes back to its shape all the time. I mean, there's another lesson is when you pull a rubber band too much and it breaks. That's a lesson about burnout and about kind of, you know, uh, being careful about those things too. But often, the rubber band will conform to its shape. It goes back to its shape. And that's the kind of faith that God is seeking to uh, develop in us. It's this idea of resilience. That resilience is this idea that you bounce back. That, you're, that there's something that contorts you. There's a trouble, a trial, a struggle, a worry, a fear. Things like that happen. But resilience is that you can bounce back. You can bounce back. And the idea of perseverance in the Christian life is that God is creating resilience in us. That we can bounce back into shape, the shape of our identity in Christ, even though we're pulled and pushed and prodded and torn, we come back to our identity in Christ. We come back to who we are, even in the midst of the storms of this life, the struggles, the worries, all these things, that ultimately the goal of our faith is that no matter what happens... Our identity in Christ will be strong enough in us, will be formed enough that God is forming it enough in us through the Holy Spirit that we'll bounce back to it no matter what happens. And that's the journey of of perseverance. It's something that God does in us that we participate in. That's something really to to get the order straight. Because perseverance can have this sense of, well, I got to do more, I got to do more, I got to do more. But really, it is a sense of God is doing something in you. His Holy Spirit's in you if you believe in him. And we are participating in his work. And his work is to form us and to strengthen us so that when life pulls us out of of, uh, form, we will come back to our identity in Christ, our hope in Christ, the grace of God in Christ. So we're going to learn how God does that through leading us on a journey of learning how to persevere in the midst of trials and struggles and temptations, tragedies, and all of these things that life hits us in that middle ground of day-to-day life, how do we persevere? And we see through our scriptures today uh, that there are really four kind of uh, points about perseverance that we see that correspond to uh, Nehemiah's four trials 
that he encountered in this passage. And we're going to look at two of those points today and two next week. So this is a two-part Perseverance sermon. So uh, come next week as well to hear the second part or hear it on the podcast. But this week we're going to learn about how we can seek to participate in God's work in our lives by seeking to have a steadfast focus in our faith and also seeking to respond faithfully to God's leading and calling. So we begin with the first attitude of perseverance, which is um, to have a steadfast focus. And we can see this in the first trial that Nehemiah faced when he was uh, in the very beginning of our chapter, when Sanballat and Geshem were, were kind of sending him these, these notes. It says in our passage, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together at Hakapirim on the plain of Ono. But they intended me harm. Now, just a few chapters before, this guy Sanbalat, we see that he had an army, and he was riding around Jerusalem looking for any openings in the wall so that he could kill everybody in the, in the whole city. That was what he wanted to do just a couple chapters before. But now we see that he lost that ability because Jerusalem was, the walls were built. So no longer did he have the chance to get in the walls and kill everybody. So now we see he focuses on getting rid of Nehemiah. And he has this subtle plan. I mean, Nehemiah found it out right away. But it's kind of this subtle plan. He kept saying, giving letters saying, hey, come, let's, let's parlay. Let's do a, you know, a diplomatic kind of uh, mission and talk about how we can work together. Just come over to the plain of Ono and everything will be great. Well, the plain of Ono was about a day's ride from Jerusalem. And the moment that Nehemiah gets out of those walls, he would be vulnerable. And that was actually the plan of Sanballat and Geshem, is get him out of Jerusalem so that they can kidnap him, or worse. The whole idea here was, if they could not destroy Jerusalem, they could get rid of its leader. That was their goal to get rid of Nehemiah. They wanted him out of the picture because then they could do whatever they wanted. They could either destroy Jerusalem or they could become the leaders of Jerusalem and take over. So that's kind of what was happening. And we see that right away. Nehemiah goes, they're, they're out to do me harm. But then you see what Sanballat and Geshem did. They just kept sending him letters over and over and over again. He sent him four different letters. And we might wonder, like, why would they do that? Why would they just keep sending letters over and over again? They were doing it to wear Nehemiah down. They wanted to wear him down. I mean, just think about that in your life. You know, someone persists every day, like, telling you, hey, come with me. Come out partying with me. Come out, to, you know, doing this with me. Come out for drinks after work. And you're like, no, I, I know I shouldn't do that because I know you guys drink too much, A, and B, you kind of end up doing stuff that are against my convictions and values. And so I probably shouldn't do that. But then someone keeps asking you, no, no, keep coming, just come. And after the fifth or sixth time, you're like, okay, maybe I should just do it. <laughs> I mean, you get worn down. And that happens to us a lot. The world can wear us down. People can wear us down. Constantly, we can be worn down. And so that was the danger for Nehemiah as is the danger for us. Often when we think, when we do something we know is wrong, 
Like when we know that something in our value system is not right, but we do it, it doesn't usually come the first time. Usually the first time we're like, nope, I can resist, I'm not doing that. But then the second time we're like, oh, I can, I can, I can resist. The third time we're like, oh, yeah, maybe I can resist. The fourth time we're like, okay, I'm going tr- to try to resist. The fifth time, oh, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I can resist. The sixth, seventh, eighth time, we're like, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think I can resist. We can get just worn down over and over by sin, by temptation, by trials. And they can little by little just kind of erode our faith. And so in the midst of that, we see that Nehemiah, he was not worn down. We see this very clearly. Instead of being kind of, you know, doubting himself by Sanballat's repeated efforts and going, ah, maybe, maybe he just wants to do a diplomatic mission. Maybe that's okay. No, he doesn't. He says to him, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? So he had this focus on God and God's work, even in the midst of like these persistent messages, persistent kind of uh, attacks, subtle attacks. He was able to stand and persevere and be persistent and unyielding in the midst of that and resolute. And so the question for us then is, how do we develop that kind of steadfast focus? Because Nehemiah, had a, he was focused. He had one goal, one purpose on God and God's work, and he was not being moved by anyone. So how do we develop that kind of steadfast focus? And we can see one point here that may be a little bit of a, a, a frustrating or sad point to us, is that this kind of focus does not come from working harder and doing more. I think that's often when we think of like doing anything, I'm going to get better at it if I just do more and do harder. I'm going to work harder and do more and work harder and do more and work harder and do more. And that works for some things, but it doesn't always work for faith. And this is why. Because with persistence and perseverance in faith, we often fail. We often fail. All of us in this room have failed in seeking to follow God and be faithful to God. Every single one of us, including myself, I will be chief among us. You know, we try to love, we try to forgive, and we just can't do it. You know, we have an annoying uh, colleague at work or coworker uh, in school or, or person in church, and we're like, you know, pastor told me to forgive, I'm going to do it. And then the next week we're like, I don't want to do it. <laughs> I really don't. Those little things can happen because we just get worn down. We get worn down. Our convictions get worn down. Little by little, so we fail. And if following the rule all the way to the end without uh, ever failing is, the, is kind of the standard of salvation, we all lose. Every single one of us. So... Having a steadfast focus in faith does not come just by doing more. Even though it's good, all of the doing is good stuff. You should be uh, reading your Bible more and praying more. You should be doing uh, connecting with church, Bible studies, and community. You should be doing serving others and things like that. That's all awesome stuff. But it is not necessarily what develops the steadfast focus in our life. What develops it, though, in our life 
is a different perspective on our trials. When we have a different perspective on what is going on in our life, we tend to respond in a different way. If I look at trials in my life as just things I got to beat, I got to overcome them, and if I got I to gotta overcome by just doing more, we're going to lose. We're going we're gonna to fail. But if I look at that trial a different way and see God in the midst of it a different way, then I begin to respond and walk through it in a different way as well. One example of this I was noticing this week was um, an interview between Stephen Colbert from uh, The Late Show and um, Anderson Cooper. And I posted this on our Facebook page. Um, but they had this interview. And in the interview, Anderson Cooper was kind of visibly shaken. And he was kind of tearing up and he asked this question uh, to Colbert because Colbert in the past had used a quote by Gerard Tolkien that I have kind of up there and it says, what punishments of God are not gifts? So he's used that in another interview of, of saying, this is what my faith is like and God is like. And Anderson Cooper, while visibly choking up, said to him, how can you believe that? How can you believe that the bad things in your life are gifts? That the thing that you most don't want to happen is actually a gift. How can you believe that? And this is how Colbert responded. He said, it is a gift to exist, and with existence comes suffering. And if you are grateful for your life, then you have to be grateful for all of it. You can't pick and choose what you're grateful for. So right away, that's a different perspective, right? You look at your sufferings just as evil, terrible, I hate them, I got to be out of them. You know, I'm having a, an issue with a coworker, and I'm really frustrated, I just want out. But if you see it as actually, well, how can I be grateful for this? What? How can I be grateful for the things that go wrong? It changes your perspective. And Colbert goes on and he says... In my tradition, which is, he's a Catholic, he said, well, it's, it's our tradition. Um, he says, the great gift of the suffering of Christ is that God does it too. You are really not alone because God suffers too. And here Colbert hits the nail on the head about a perspective that helps us persevere in the midst of trials. And Nehemiah, we see, understood this in part. He was living before the, the revelation of God's work through Jesus Christ. But he understood that God is with him. He understood that God was for him. He understood that God had his back. He understood these things. He could pray to God, be my strength, strengthen my hands, because he knew God was with him. But we have even this greater perspective of God's work in Jesus Christ. Because we know without a doubt that if God came to earth as a human being, if God suffered on the cross, if he died a sinner's death, if he was risen on the third day, if that is true, then we know for a fact that death is not the last word in your life or anyone else's life. We know for a fact that sin no longer defines you. That you may sin, but you are not sin anymore. You are a redeemed child of God. We know that. We know that if Jesus really did these things, that you are loved by God. You are his beloved child. 
And those things bring perseverance. They give us new understanding of God's work in the midst of our suffering. James says it this way. He says, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, when, you, when I first read that, when I was a new Christian, I was like, what? <laughs> I did not, it did not make sense to me that how somehow in the midst of trials we're supposed to be joyful, like, woohoo, so glad I, my boss is a jerk, awesome, woo, you know, so glad, so glad I'm having family problems, praise God. Yeah, it just doesn't make sense. But what, what James here is saying, consider it all joy. Not that all these things are joy, that we're supposed to be happy and enthusiastic and euphoric in the midst of trials. But he's saying it, consider it all joy. So we're not called to necessarily feel joy when we face trials, but we're called to look at them from a perspective of joy. The word joy in Greek is the word kara. And it comes from the root word of grace, which is charis. So even though I didn't put that up on the screen, you can hear that, that similarity, right? Kara, charis. They're connected. Grace, the unconditional love of God. Joy, then, is recognizing grace. That's what joy is. So when you see joy in the, in the New Testament especially, it's not saying, be so happy, like, awesome party. It's saying, recognize grace. It is grace recognized. So James is saying, recognize grace, people, in the midst of your trials, because God is with you. He is with you in Jesus Christ, and he is working in the midst of your life. He is doing something through those trials. Those trials are not worthless. They are not meaningless, but through God, he can turn beauty and make beauty from ashes. He can take death and make it life again. He can take darkness and make it light. So he can take your trials and make something of them. James says, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This idea of steadfast focus. So as we're tested little by little, we can gain this kind of, this kind of resilience. It comes back to this is who I am. This is my identity in Christ. And even though I'm, I'm hurt by a conflict or a criticism, I can bounce back to who I am. Even though there's family problems that deeply trouble me, I can, I can bounce back to who I am. I can come back to the well, to the foundation of who I am. Even though I lose my job or have troubles in my job, even though I don't get into the program I wanted in school, I can come back to who I am in Christ because that's what's in us. The Holy Spirit's in us. It's what's given us the gift of grace in Jesus Christ. So once we realize that, trials are not meaningless anymore. Even though we don't hope for them, and God's also not going, I'm going to give you trials so I can do these things to you. God's not vindictive. But God uses broken things and he makes them whole again. So we can see that he uses even the worst things in our life. And that causes us a different response. 
We see in the second trial of Nehemiah that after the first trial uh, failed and Sanballat couldn't get him out of Jerusalem, in the second trial, uh, Sanballat sent him this letter. And it's this open letter that basically says, everybody around us knows how much you are trying to take over Jerusalem and you're trying to, to get rid of, get out of the, the thumb of the, the king of the Persians. So basically, this is stuff that could have call, caused him to get killed, basically. Because he, he is telling people, he's saying, I'm going to tell everybody that you are trying to be your own king. That's what he's trying to say. So that could get him killed. And also we know that Nehemiah is a man of character. So he's not going to want that rumor to persist. He's going to want to go back to Persia, talk to the king, and, you know, make it, make it right. So that was the second ploy of Sanballat. If he couldn't kidnap Nehemiah, he'd get him out of the picture. He'd make him take that month-long journey back to Persia to, to try to convince the king that, this lie is not true. So again, we see that Nehemiah was, was faced with a choice. He had to reflect, what am I going to do? Am I going to stay here? Am I going to go back? And we see what he did in the end. It said, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all want to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. So Nehemiah here was reflecting, what should I do? And also he was reflecting, am, did, is this true? Did I do it? See, when we have this perspective of grace in the midst of trials, we can reflect in a different way. Suddenly, there's not this shroud of shame and, and over our, our lives. So when we look at our lives, we have to defend ourselves. We have to blame others when things are wrong, like we talked about last week. But now we can take that shroud of shame off and we go, what's the problem? We can even know that if we're the problem, we can deal with it. I don't know how easy it is for you to admit you're wrong. We talked about that last week. To just say, I'm wrong. And odds are in every conflict, like we talked about, we're both right and wrong. So there's always a sense that we have something to work on in the midst of any conflict. But it's hard to admit that if we don't have the grace of God. If, if every wrong thing means that God's not going to love you or people are not going to love you, you're never going to admit you're wrong. You never can be vulnerable. But in grace, once we realize God's love and mercy in the midst of our life, we can admit, we can be honest, we can work on the things we need to work on. We can take those things and face them head on. Because failure is not fatal. Life is not futile, and God is not angry at you. <laughs> so that gives us a new perspective on how we reflect, but it also gives us a new perspective on God. We see that Nehemiah said, they're just trying to frighten us, because Nehemiah knew that in faith there is no fear. In God's grace, there is no fear. We don't have to be afraid of anything. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, there is nothing we have to be afraid of. Because God is real. And so it gives us a different perspective about who God is in the midst of our life. I was thinking about this the other day when a friend of mine posted something on Facebook. She posted this about her daughter. Um, her daughter had 
uh, really tried out for this play. She was really wanted to get into this musical. They live in Atlanta, and it was kind of a big regional production. And there were 100 kids that applied, all eight-year-olds. And she, uh, you know, she had tried for, like, months memorizing the monologue, memorizing the song. She was ready. When my friend said, like, she was as ready as she could ever be. She was excited. She was enthusiastic. She got there. She aced the monologue. And she made a mistake in the song. And so she didn't get the part. And you can imagine, like, just imagine when you were eight years old and something you really hoped for, like, you didn't get it. She was devastated. She was just so sad, just, you know, just embarrassed, everything that comes along with it. And my friend described her husband coming home, and, and her husband came home, surprised her with a bouquet of flowers. And this is what my friend wrote on her Facebook post. She said, Sometimes you don't achieve the goals that you work hard to accomplish. You cry. You think about giving up. You wonder what you did wrong. But then your dad surprises you with flowers and a story about Jonas Salk and how he failed 99 times before inventing the polo vaccine. You gain perspective and resilience. You realize failure is a gift. Most importantly, you know your dad is proud of you and loves you unconditionally. That honestly just made me tear up when I first read it on Facebook. But the way that uh, my friend Jen's husband portrayed unconditional love is really the way that God portrays his unconditional love to us through Jesus Christ. When we fail when we don't miss, hit the mark, we see the scriptures, the prodigal son, the father is just waiting, arms open to receive the son again. And that's you and me. We will never be able to persevere in the Christian life unless we have that perspective about God. Because perseverance is going to be about failure over and over and over again. You're going to constantly try and fall and stumble and try and fall and stumble again and again and again. That's what happens in our daily life as we just try to live out faith. And if we don't have this perspective of God that is for us, a God who we can fail in front of because he has already already died for our worth, a God who is with us, we we can believe failure is a gift. We can believe perseverance And trials are a gift somehow. We can believe that our daddy, our father God, is proud of us and loves us unconditionally. The word test in James is an interesting word. It means to prove the quality of something through through suffering. So when um, James says, rejoice at the testing of many kinds... He is saying that testing refines you. Just like any pure metal, when it's, when it's made into like a gold bar or, or like a silver bar, it goes through this process of refining where it's actually heated many times and then cooled and heated and cooled. And every time, little impurities are kind of burned out of it. And that's the process of perseverance in our life. Little by little, God works in our life to mature us, to 
to guide us, to, sh- to ground us in his love and grace over and over again, often through trials and suffering and pain and worry and doubt and conflict. That's the way God works. And the one thing to know about the midst of it is that you are the precious metal. In the testing, you are the precious metal that God is refining. And God loves us enough to want to refine us. And so as we go from here, I encourage you to accept that. To accept that in the midst of trials, they are not worthless. They are not only darkness. But God is in the midst of it. Working, working through the darkness to bring light. Working through the death to bring life. Working through the ugliness to bring beauty. Because he loves you that much. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, we thank you that we can count it all joy in the midst of various trials. And that doesn't seem to make sense, Lord God, because trials do not seem joyful in any of our lives. But we thank you, Lord, that, that in you there is a different perspective that we can gain that can help us be steadfast. Lord, help us, Lord, to, to seek that perspective, to be grounded in it, to be centered in it, and especially whatever's going on in our life right now, to try to see that perspective in the middle of it. Thank you, God. Amen.